I'm taking you back now to 1959, 1959, and there was an obscure white journalist named John Howard Griffin. Comes from Texas. And he goes to the dermatologist in New Orleans with what could only be an astonishing request. He wants to become a Negro. Now this John Howard Griffin is a man of conscience and he has religious convictions. He's deeply troubled by the racial situation back there in his native south. He's haunted by these questions. If a white man becomes a Negro in the deep south, what adjustments would have to be made? What would he experience in discrimination based on skin colour, something over which one really doesn't have much control? The dermatologist agrees to cooperate with Griffin's project. What journalists get up to? He wants to darken his skin with medication taken orally and it's followed by exposure to the ultraviolet rays. Griffin, who has arranged with the editors of Sepia, a prominent black magazine, will write about his experiences. But he's in a hurry to get started and ask for accelerated treatments. So he has supplements with the stain. He also shaves his head because he's got no curls. He does not look in the mirror until the process is complete and when he does, he sees his face and on, on his shoulders is the face of a stranger, a fierce, bald, very dark Negro. He himself is stunned. This is his words. The transformation is total and shocking. Well, what happens? As he gets around now, he hitchhikes and goes to various places, all places that he knew. It's very, very interesting. There's a whole book about it. The results are predictable. And yet Griffin feels the results for the first time. Stupid young toughs call him nigger. And the word hits him like a hammer. People push him around. Police and other people look at him suspiciously, as if being black makes it somehow likely that he's a wanted man. One white man with whom Griffin hitches a ride tells him filthy things. He thinks that being black would make this Mr. Griffin enjoys such rubbish. As a black man, Griffin begins to understand what it is to be humiliated or else to have people look right through him as if he were a window pane instead of a person. Some things cannot be understood until they're experienced. And that takes me to my first main point. Jesus comes into this world to be right where we are. He understands us. He understands us extremely well because he's come to be in this world right where we are. Let's look at Luke 2 and verse 31. You will be with child, says the angel to Mary. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. This unique baby in Luke 2.31 has had a glorious, blessed life with the Father and with the Spirit, but now he comes to earth. And as we saw at the very beginning of the service, what does he do? Philippians 2 and verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking. He added, he was taking the form of a servant. He didn't really empty himself at all. People get that wrong. He added to himself the form 
of a servant. He added to his divinity the experience of human nature. The man, Christ Jesus, takes upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh. He knows what it is to struggle in a fallen world where people live and die without hope. He's come where there's drunkenness, just like we have at our Christmas parties, and the swearing and all the abuse. He's experienced cynicism and hatred. People even spit in Jesus' face and hit him on the head repeatedly. He gets beaten up. You read the whole story. His family often do not understand him and his friends betray and leave him. He learns what it is to be, what it's like to be taunted and shoved aside and sent from one petty corrupt official to another. And then people murder him in a particularly cruel manner. Well, in times, in the way we could think in terms of eternity, only a few days have passed since then. We live in the same world. Nothing materially much has changed since that time the baby comes into our world. We're all lost people. And Jesus comes to a world of lost people. You think of Newtown in America and the murder of little children. Bethlehem has the same kind of thing happen where Jesus was born. Little children are ruthlessly treated and murdered. It's a lost world with lost people. Jesus tastes the bitterness of our low condition. Humanity is plunged into sin and the Lord comes not to a paradise but to the bleakness of our world. He comes as bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He shows us what true humanity is. He loves God and he loves God wholeheartedly and he loves his neighbour as he loves himself. And while keeping his integrity, Jesus learns what our pain is like and becomes eternally touched by the feelings of our weaknesses. And just like a little bird is able to show other birds where the food is without scaring them, what happens? The Son of God can safely lead us to our Heavenly Father. He's the one mediator between God and man, divine and yet a loving brother as well. Takes me to my second main point about the glorious details of Jesus coming. We've had about his human name, Jesus, as Saviour. But there's so much more in verse 32. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The details are here. Every part of this account is full of deep meaning and deserves our close attention. Jesus will be great, says Gabriel. Of his greatness we know a little bit already. He has brought a great salvation. He himself is the prophet greater than Moses, infinitely greater. He is the great high priest, infinitely greater. He himself is not just the priest, but he's also the sacrifice. And he'll be greater still when everyone will own him as king of kings and lord of lords. My words, if they were the commonest to be found, yes, they could well be. Even if they were ungrammatical and they were put together with no technical terms, it would matter very little. For failure awaits me when I talk about Jesus' greatness. This subject is beyond all human speaking. If I said he's like the priest, 
And you multiply that by infinity with a perfect priest that you most possibly could imagine. You multiply it by infinity. You still don't really get near how wonderful he is. How great he is. Jesus is such a person that no special words can ever reach the height of his glory. The simplest words are best to fit the subject. That is so wonderful. Fine words would be weak things to put alongside this unspeakably glorious Lord. His greatness. Jesus, verse 32, will be called the Son of the Most High, says Gabriel. There's really no word the before Son. He will be called Son of the Most High. This talks about his, when there's no article there, no word the, it talks about his absolute uniqueness, the highness of his sonship. It's like that word in John 3.16, you know it so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his unique, his only begotten. We don't even know how to translate that word. His special son. He'll be called son of the most high. He was so before he came into the world, equal to the Father in all things. He was from all eternity, Son of God. But he's now to be known as such and acknowledged as such by his church. The Messiah is recognised and worshipped as nothing less than very God, a very God. You know how John 1 starts? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews is the same. You start reading Hebrews and straight away you're confronted with this person who is God. The word Lord from the Old Testament is applied to him and his eternal reigning right from the beginning. There's nobody like him. His uniqueness we can't spell out. Verse 32, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, says Gabriel. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. This word for throne is a symbol of supreme power. The throne of his father, David. David was promised, as you know from 2 Samuel and 7, that David would be on the throne forever, his descendants forever. And here's somebody who comes to fulfill that perfectly. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Reign here is not just a territorial reign over a place. It's to do with hearts, your heart and my heart. He reigns in hearts where he's loved. Like those people I was talking about earlier in Borneo, where people really, really love him. They're next to nothing to give, but they wanted to give because they love him. He reigns in hearts. Gabriel goes on to say his kingdom, and this was a word I was told, Never to use when I was writing at school. Never use the word never. But the Bible can use it so easily because it's true. His kingdom will never end. Before his glorious kingdom, the empires of the other, other worlds will one day come down and disappear, just like Nineveh and Babylon and Tyre and Carthage. They will come to nothing one day. But the saints of the Most High shall take his kingdom, before Jesus every knee will one day bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. His kingdom will prove to be what kind of kingdom? An everlasting kingdom. And his reign will never pass away. The two true Christians should often dwell on these glorious promises and take comfort in the details. You may have no cause, no cause whatsoever 
to be ashamed of your master. Poor and despised as you may often feel, just like John Howard Griffin felt, despised. People looked through him, he felt despised. You may feel assured and completely assured this morning that you're on the winning side, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Christ. For in just a little while, Hebrews 10 and verse 37, Hebrews 10, 37, in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. And for that great day let us patiently wait and watch and pray. Now is the time for carrying the cross and for fellowship with Christ's sufferings. The time is soon coming when this Lord Jesus will take his great power and reign. And all who serve him faithfully will exchange the cross that they have for the crown that he will graciously give. Let's notice in these verses the reverent and discreet manner in which the Abriel talks of the mystery, the impossible thing that's about to happen, the mystery of Christ's incarnation. The angel says to Mary, Mary says, how will this be? And the angel says these amazing words, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Wonderful poetry here, isn't it? Wonderful pictures. But we do well to follow the example of the angel in our reflections on this deep subject. Let us ever regard it with holy reverence and abstain from those improper, improper and unprofitable speculations of how it all happened. Some people have tried to indulge in such things and just got lost. Enough for us to know John 1 and verse 14, John 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh. It's a strong term, that term flesh. Just give yourself a pinch. That's what he felt too when he touched himself or hurt himself. He felt it. He became flesh. The Son of God came into the world with a real body prepared for him, Hebrews 10 and verse 5, Hebrews 10 verse 5, so that he took part in our flesh and blood, Hebrews 2 and verse 14. And he, as Galatians 4 and verse 4 says, he was born of a woman. And there we must stop. The manner in which it all was brought about is wisely hidden from us. If we attempt to inquire into it beyond the points that we're given there, We'll just mess things up and rush in where angels fear to tread. It's a nature of true truth, which really comes to us down from heaven, that there will always be things we can't quite add up. They're called mysteries. And of such mysteries in Christianity, this one before us is a very important one. You're a mystery to yourself, I'm sure. And here's one here, so much greater an incredible mystery, the incarnation, how this one who is very God of very God added to himself flesh and blood like we have. Notice the prominent place here too of the Holy Spirit in this great mystery, which is called technically the incarnation. We find it written there, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Verse 35. Now any reader who starts to note and look for the Holy Spirit, how he's mentioned and where he's mentioned, will find that he comes in key places all the way through, important spots as far as the truth is concerned. 
You won't fail to remember that honour here is given to the Spirit is in precise harmony with the teaching of the Bible in other places. In every step of human redemption, you will find special mention of the work of the Holy Spirit. Did Jesus die to make atonement for our sins? It is written that through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without spot to God, Hebrews 9.14. Through the eternal Spirit, our redemption took place. Did Jesus rise for our justification? It is written that he was made alive by the Spirit. 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18. And does Jesus supply his disciples with counsel between the time of his first coming and the second coming? It is written that the counsellor whom he promised is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit, John 14 and verse 17. Let's be careful that we give the Holy Spirit the same place in our personal understanding where we find him in God's word. Let us remember that all who are believers and all that we have and enjoy, we have by the inward teaching of the Holy Spirit. Are you learning something worthwhile this morning or are you revising something that you knew you knew but you knew you needed to know again? It's because the Holy Spirit is teaching you this morning. He's here. The work of each three persons of the Trinity is equally and entirely needful for the salvation of every saved person. The election of God the Father, the redemption of God the Son, he purchases us, and the making of us holy is done by the work of God the Spirit. They ought never to be separated in our understanding. And my third point, there's a mighty rule of thumb for all of us this morning and it's one that the angel Gabriel lays down to silence all objections about Jesus coming into the world as a baby, a human baby it's in there in verse 37 and it's joined to the whole account here for, for see that little word for it will happen to you Mary and it's happened to Elizabeth there's been some other things around you that have been happening an impossible thing and then it says for nothing is impossible with God. And I say to you, wholeheartedly welcome this great truth, this truth of immense importance, because it's so important for our inward peace. Questions and doubts will often arise in people's minds, in your mind and my mind, about many subjects and many of life's situations. They're the natural results of our being in a fallen condition of our heart and soul. Our faith at best is very weak. Our knowledge at its highest is clouded with many questions. But the best antidote is ours and it's there right before us. The antidote to doubts and anxiety and a questioning state of mind. You know these EpiPens they they keep at school these days? Here's one for you. And just grab it when you need it. And you'll be a different person. Nothing, nothing whatsoever is impossible with God. This is a thorough conviction that we need of the almighty power of God. With him who has called this whole world into being and formed it out of nothing, everything is possible. Nothing is too hard for the Lord, Jeremiah 32. Nothing. Nothing is too hard for him. There's no sin too dark and bad that it can't be pardoned. 
the blood of Christ, 1 John 1 verse 7, purifies from all, all sin. There's no heart too hard and wicked not to be changed. The heart of stone can be made a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36 and 26. There's no work too hard for a believer to do. Arthur in my story didn't want to have to tell these very, very poor people that they should be a giving people because they had a giving saviour. He didn't want to have to tell them. And he told them amidst many of his own doubts about doing so. There's no work too hard for a believer to do. We may do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Philippians 4 and verse 13. There's no trial too hard to be borne. It's because the grace of God is sufficient. It's sufficient for Apostle Paul. He was flesh and blood just like you and me. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, the grace of God is sufficient for us. There's no promise too great that it won't be fulfilled. Christ's words will never pass away. I can remember Sunday school material when I was a child and here was the world all disappearing. No world left, no heaven, no earth left anymore and there was a Bible still with the truth. The words will never pass away. No promise will ever be there that he is not able to perform. There's no difficulty too great for a believer to overcome when God is for us. Romans 8 and verse 31. But he is for us since he is for us. Who or what are they that are against us? And next to nothing. When God, this God of the impossible, is for us. The mountain, Zechariah and chapter 3, the mountain will become a plain. Let truths like these be continually before our minds. The angel's words are an invaluable cure. Nothing is impossible with God. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it puts its head on the pillow of God's perfect power. Our unbelief is the greatest hindrance to our, in our way. In fact, there's no other difficulty that's really just like that. It gets in a way with our spiritual prosperity and progress. The Lord can and will do everything, yes. Powers of evil will be scattered if we will but believe. Despised truth will come back to the, the fore when our confidence, confidence is in the God of truth. You can bear your load of trouble or pass uninjured through the waves of distress if you can wear truth at your belt and hold up that shield of faith, lift it up over all. What can you not believe? Is everything possible except believing in this God? Yet he is always true. He never lied to you before. He's always faithful to his word. Why don't you trust him? When you're in the right state of heart, faith costs no effort. It is then natural for us to rely upon God just as it's natural for a little child to rely upon his father. Or her father. The worst of this whole business is that we can believe God about everything except the present pressing trial, whatever that is. 
We can believe God. We can trust him for yesterday and we can trust him for the future so often, but the present trial that's ours, whatever it is, the present pressing trial, we don't want to trust him for that. And that's where the battle lies this morning. And that's why you need this unique antidote. Mary needed it too. So do you. Nothing is impossible with God. Well, as I conclude, who can understand the virgin birth? The virgin conception. The birth was quite normal. The virgin conception. The incarnation. My little story about John Howard Griffin is only a tiny, tiny little bit like it. It's such an incredible and wonderful mystery. Who can understand the cross and the atonement? How your sins can be cleansed because he died back then. Who can understand the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit? Who can understand a new birth, a new life that comes with new beginning? It's all baffling, it's all staggering. So unlike anything we could have ever thought up or came up with. Nothing is impossible with this God. This means that there is literally hope for all. Even the most hopeless and the most terrible impossible case? No, it's not impossible at all. That's just our little label for it. With God, all is possible. Let's speak with him together. Lord God, you know our present pressing trial, whatever it is individually and as a church and as people of this generation. And we thank you for this reassurance at the first when Mary comes to this big step in her life. An impossible thing. Something that is out of the range of human understanding. That she had to trust you. Help us to trust you in the same way. Equip us by your spirit. You said to ask and we will receive. Lord Jesus, you've given us the direction and you've argued your case with us. Even fathers who are evil give good gifts to their children. We see all the Christmas wrapping around and all the toys. Fathers give good gifts to their children. Lord, give your Holy Spirit to us in every and all situations, equipping us with the wisdom necessary and the joy necessary to shine for you as you've called us to do, to show forth the fruit of your Spirit in our lives. Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed by the fact that you would leave the splendour of heaven, knowing your destiny, and come right to where we are, to a lonely hill of Golgotha, and lay down your life for people like ourselves. We wonder at the grace that you would become poor, so that we through your poverty might become rich and we worship you with our heart and tell you again that we love you. We want to glory in your name, the name of Jesus, Son of the Most High. And we pray in that name, in Jesus' name. Amen.